The blog pot contains language and content that some people may consider unsavory. So if you don't like content or bad language, then the blog pot is not the place for you. Not entering the blog pod. We haven't got a rant talking about the upcoming AFL season, and I did a little bit of a teaser a couple of weeks ago by saying. I felt that there were two teams that could potentially jump ahead and do a bit of a West Coast Eagles 2011. Do you reckon it's time to uh, let the cat out of the bag? Oh, look, I'll, I will say this much. I said at the, oh, I reckon with like three weeks left to go in last year's season, I said Hawthorne-Collingwood Grand Final this year, and I still don't see any any remote reason to change that prediction right now. Hawthorne Collins, I see. Yeah, as, as things stood right now, I'd probably still look towards Geelong. I think that, yeah, I, I just have my concerns about this transition from Malthouse to Buckley and how that's actually going to work for Collingwood. But I actually and reckon it's better that they didn't win the flag last year. Yeah, well, that's helps exactly, Buckley. It does help. That's, that's quite true. But, I mean, they've already lost two guys now to, uh, to knee injuries. So, oh, Geelong have lost Cameron Ling and... Yeah, some other guy whose name well, I, I escapes think me. Brad Ottens is probably the, mm, the biggest yeah, loss yeah, that Geelong have had, and he's yeah. they'll miss him a lot more than they'll miss Cameron Wing. But anyway, time for the reveal. The two teams that I actually think are the best chance to jump up from outside the the top the top eight and really make a serious run at it. The obvious one to target is Fremantle. So I'm actually going to leave them to the side. Having said that, I don't see Fremantle being a top four contender anyway. I think that they'll. They'll probably no. finish around the 6-8 to eight mark this year. I still cannot see Fremantle beating any even half-decent side away from home. I just, yeah. I just can't see it happening. The beauty, the beauty of it is is that with such a home ground advantage over here, they might not need to do that to go deep. You can get 13 or 14 wins without really having to beat a quality team or even an average team on the road. Yeah, but ultimately you still won't have a yeah, rat chance help, in hell of winning the It doesn't help you in September, though. Yeah, That's the exactly. problem, is that invariably you're going to have to win... A, if you're an interstate team, invariably you have to win one game on the road. Uh, not just that, but you have to look like beating some of the best teams in the mm, competition on so, the road. And I can't see Frio doing that this year. The first team I really think, I, I think that they they have a really good chance of jumping into the top four this year, and it's purely predicated on their draw, but also to to a certain extent their talent is uh, North Melbourne. Now North finished ninth last year. Admittedly, they had a, a, a nice run with injuries, but they've got the the the, the absolute pearl of draw for a team that's on the rise. Mm. You could look at their draw and easily see them winning 14 or 15 games this year. Well, if memory serves correctly, I don't think North Melbourne actually beat a team who finished above them on the ladder for the entire last season, basically. They beat all the teams below them and they didn't beat anyone who finished above them. So the biggest um, challenge for them will actually be, can they step up and, um, and yeah. beat these well, the, the better that's sides? That's kind of been the problem with North. I, I, I think that there's... There's two things to take into account. It's a, that's a valid point. They, they've they been absolutely polar. Historically, the, the Collingwoods and the Geelongs have absolutely torched them. So there's still a level below that that top elite thing. Mm. But 
the thing that I like most about North is that they've got a good core of kids who are in that kind of that 30 to 70 games bracket now. Yeah. And that's really the the you, you have the you have the icing on the cake with guys like Petrie and Harvey, but it's it's Harvey. Well, he's the icing on the cake these days. He's the biggest seagull ever to play the game. That cake's been left out in the sun. Yeah, but it's the it's the Todd Goldsteins, it's the Lee Adams, it's the um, Jack Zebels. These types of guys who have now got two or three years under their belt that you really they're the guys who you'll start to see really kick on strong. And they're, not, the, not they're, the guys, they're the guys that invariably win your premierships. So. Yeah. I was going to say, they don't even have to kick on strong, but they just have to be solid. Yeah. That's all you need is basically, yeah, I see what you mean. That sort of second tier of players who will just get the job done week in, week out. And they've got a, they've got a nice core there. I think that that's the thing. They've, they've, they've got a bit of depth in their key position players, which is, which is always a handy thing to have. They've... They've been towards the bottom end of the draft, so they've been able to pick up some really good kids. And they've got a solid base of veterans there, and I think the transition from Harvey to Swallow was an important one for them to make, and they probably should have made it last year. It may have cost them a finals berth. Yeah. So... I mean, Brent Harvey to North Melbourne is sort of the poor man's Matthew Richardson to Richmond, I'd say. Because at least back in the Richo days... He really was the great white hope of that mm. side. It was the only thing keeping him out there. Yeah. Whereas Harvey has sort of been almost talked up that way for the last couple of years. But the fact is, North Melbourne have a lot of a lot of players who are ten times. Um, you mm. know, they are just out of. You know, Harvey's not even in their league yeah. right now. Well, I mean, yeah. Look, if they can get a, they can get some games out of Hamish McIntosh this year, and if. Lockie Hanson finally lives up to that number three draft rating that he had in 2006. Mm. They, they can be a serious contender this year. I really do believe that. The other team who has a really nice draw is Adelaide. And being an interstate team, if you can build a bit of a fortress around your home ground, and with a draw that allows you to play Greater Western Sydney, the Gold Coast and Port Adelaide twice, you might be getting four or eight points Head start. Adelaide is such a funny team, though. Like, you would have thought they could have won a premiership a few years back. And well, I mean, even since just... then, they've had that that sort of... As we yeah. were talking about North Melbourne, guys like just Paul Pleasure, Taylor Walker. Um, there were a couple of other forwards as well. There were just so many young players like Tip, that. Tippett. Yeah, yeah. And um, another one as well. I can't well, they got, a, they got a few good but, guys. Dangerfield, Rory. Yes, Dangerfield, yes. Yeah. He's the Dangerfield, other one. Rory, Swine. They've got, they've yeah, got all these names like that. Yeah. But they just, they just haven't kicked on over the last couple of years. Yeah. It's well, been I mean, very surprising. You're quite right. The Adelaide teams of 05 and 06 were, were premiership worthy. It was very, very interesting because... It was basically a little bit of paper, rock, scissors during that time. It was Federer and Nadal and Djokovic. Yeah, in many respects, you know, it's the and West Coast Adelaide. Yeah, exactly. Adelaide couldn't get past the Eagles, mm. but Adelaide owned Sydney during that time. Yeah. So that the problem that they had was, you know, five and 06, they kept coming up against the Eagles, who just, you know, always had their measure. I mean, they had the Eagles on toast in two thousand and six, and they couldn't put them away. Yeah, but I would say, I mean, after that. Sorry, this is one match that is etched forever in my memory. The um, the Adelaide Collingwood final in um, 2009, where Jack Anthony kicked that goal at the end, because 
every single other fucking tipster in the comp had tipped um, Adelaide Knights at Collingwood, and that was the one I was already quite a bit in front by that mm. stage, but that was the one that secured the, um, the tipping competition for me that year. You looked at the mark of that game, and you would have thought, geez, this, I think it was that year where you thought this team could, could play in a grand final next mm. year. Well, I mean, uh, the, other, the other reason why I like Adelaide as a team that could potentially bolt, similar, similar issue with North Melbourne, but the new coach, there's going to be one of the new coach teams that's really going to jump. It could be Does Adelaide. Frio? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, look, I, I almost think that Frio's a given. If they stay fit, they stay injury-free. We'll talk, I'll talk about Frio in a lot more detail a little bit later on. Because I, there's there's a lot to discuss when it comes to Fremantle, but I see Fremantle as probably a lower half of the eight type and f- squad. And for the record, they would have been in the exact same position with Mark Harvey. So I'm not as convinced of that. But anyway. Oh, but are you telling me though, at the start of this season under Harvey, you wouldn't have looked at that Frio side and said, right, after the run they had with injuries last year, they can definitely be aiming to make the eight this season. Well, knowing that we were talking about the AFL, I actually had a chat to a couple of Fremantle supporters whose opinions I value. Yeah, there's a, there's only a couple of them out there, so I'll give you their names at the end of this podcast. But mm. their their response to a lot of that things was Harvey actually caused a lot of those problems rather than solving a lot of them. So their their belief was that the in, whilst there was a big injury uh, injury situation down there, Harvey was actually responsible for a fair chunk of what was going on there. What about the wonders he did with them the year before? Though? Yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. They, I mean, they really missed Morabito. They had a yeah. half-fit Stephen yeah. Hill. That Morabito one, I, I distinctly remember saying um, to my best mate's mum, I said, that is the sort of injury that can just suck the heart out of a side for the entire season. Well, I mean, to see a young guy go down like that. It wasn't just that. I mean, him, him and Stephen Hill were really their two line breakers. And, and I mean, to a lesser extent, David Mundy really falls into that category as well. They're the only guys who really look to take guys on in the Fremantle team who are running through their midfield. If you lose, mm. if you don't have that capability these days, the way that it's played, it's really, really tough to be mm. successful. Well, I think the Morabito one was also just the... Yeah, what a soul-crushing injury it was for a young guy to go down like that before the season even started with a 12-month injury. Yeah. It was just, it was one of those things. I remember when the Aussies landed in England in 2005 and they were told as they got off the plane that, um, that Jeff Kennett had, um, not Jeff Kennett, what's his name? The um, Costa Zhu yeah. had lost his comeback match and, and Punzer just said, oh, that's really disappointing, isn't it? And... It was almost just like, from that moment on, there was just that vibe. Well, sometimes you can just almost tell when it's just not going to be your season or yeah. not going to be your series. I mean, yeah, that's a really good example, that one, because if McGrath doesn't tread in a cricket yeah. ball, we probably win that series 4-1. Yeah. I was going to say, Sometimes you, know, you just sort of look at events like that and it's almost well, just like, yeah, fate's way of saying, guys, you're about to, yeah, take it without lube. <laughs> mm. Indeed, I don't know where to go from there. Well, let me just make one comment, and this is something I've always said. Stephen Hill is one of the best fucking players in the AFL, bar none. He is so heavily underrated. That kid is a fucking superstar. Possibly the best kick I've ever seen. 
that left foot it's just a traceable the way he kicks the ball and when he runs he almost it's almost like when you look at a like a gazelle running you look at it and just think that that's just a creature that's just basically been naturally designed to run that's how he looks when he runs he just I, it's uh, just him in his element completely I remember watching him in uh, in a game that was going back a while before he played in the AFL and I saw this kid play and I remember I was with my dad at the time and I turned to him and I said that kid is a left footed Peter Matera mm. and I, I can't think of a, a better way to put it Matera just kind of yeah he, he, it's hard to explain how he ran but he just kind of glides across the territory yeah. but as I meanwhile say, it's running natural that's yeah. what it looks like everyone gliding, else is trying yeah, so hard right. to catch him and he just doesn't look like well, he's, he's even he's gliding across the territory running like 10% faster than everyone mm. else and it's with Stephen Hill, it's the legs too. Yeah. Just the way his legs move when he runs, yeah. It's similar, similar really I mean, Matera bulked up a little bit towards the end, but a similar type mm. of build when they first came in. The, the movement, yeah, it's just so graceful, yeah. for lack of a better phrase. Now, I seriously hope that... The, the, I, and I mean, I'm pretty sure that Ross Lyon will know how to do this because he, he dealt with a similar type of player in Nick Del Santo. Oh, is it a hope? Come on. No, let me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me finish my comments oh. before you jump in. All right. With regards, coming. the point is, the, the only reason why I'm making a comparison between him and Del Santo is, is that to this point, well, up until a year ago in Del Santo's case, to that point in time, both players showed to be completely incapable of breaking a tag. And I think that it's really, really important that Stephen Hill learns and that they develop strategies to help Stephen Hill break a tag this year because that is going to be a critical component in their success moving forward. Can I jump in now? I'm not saying that Hill and Del Santo are similar players. I'm saying that both were incapable of breaking a tag. Nick Del Santo is quite possibly the single most overrated AFL footballer of all time. Bar none. Bar none. I could fucking rack up 42 disposals a match getting cheap kicks on the half-back line every week. When did he actually Have you take on an opponent play? and win a contest and actually inspire a team with his performance? You he clearly, never did it. You clearly didn't watch St Kilda match last year. Mate, I, look, I, last I year perhaps, but look, uh, what I'm saying is that... Is that two, like 2009 called and they want their opinion back. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, man. I the said way that people like, talk this guy up, when half the time he didn't even have a direct opponent, he'd just be piss-farting around down the back line. I would have said the same thing 2009, but last year in particular he showed me something, He showed me that he actually had the capability to do uh, yeah, stuff. But that's fair enough, but I'm talking like the... You know, ten years before that. Yeah, oh, everyone was, just talks him yeah, out. And you know what it is? He used it's, to be squid. You know what it is? It's because Dream Team exists. No, the reason... The That's reason, why. The because only reason... People see him and it's like, he's no, the, there's the a, Messiah there's a, for Dream Team coaches. There's a, there's a much simpler answer to that is that Lenny Hayes exists. Take Lenny Hayes out of that team and you have to go get your own ball all of a sudden. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, actually take part in the contest. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened. He really stood up after Lenny Hayes went down last year. Nice. So, but up until that point, I would have said that he was a cheap ball. He was a cheap scab. But, as I say, it would be interesting to see. And he was getting quite heavily... Sorry, he was getting quite heavily tagged last year and he found a way to get past it. So it would be interesting to see if they can employ the same strategies for Stephen Hill this year. I don't reckon I'm that worried about it, though. Because I don't think he's... 
really been completely injury free. Yeah, for a while look, now. there's no question that he. I mean, he didn't have a, a preseason mm-hmm. last year, and he played under duress for most of last year. It was. Well, I, I remember watching him at one of the games and going, "There's no way he's fit." Because oh, he's when the Adelaide him. guy outran him, yeah, and did it. You know, he only just got past him, but I saw it happening, and I was like, Stephen Hill is chasing someone and not catching him. So, yeah. Something is clearly less than 100% yeah. there. So. But he, um, yeah, I I think the biggest problem with him was that, like, there were a couple of matches very early on. I think it was Brody Rawlings. Yeah, who, like, kept Brody Rawlings. Yeah. yeah, Brody, yeah. And from that moment onwards, it was almost like, okay, he can't beat a tag without actually having... A great deal of evidence um, to back up that claim. It, it was quick, just because quick, um, it started off that quick way. Jones from St Kilda did a nice sort of touch-up job on him mm. as well, which was around a similar time. Yeah, but I mean, but, there's uh, been plenty of good players have been touched way, up a couple of yeah, times. And the best way, I yeah. mean, the, the reality is, is that the best way to to break a tag is to be able to run freely. The and best if way you can't, to break a tag is to actually have a couple of other players around you who will also. Well, that also helps. I mean, well, I mean, you know. This is this is part of the reason why Chris Judd said his favourite teammate of all time was Ryan Jones because he used to block guys who were tagging him, <laughs> so he could get a free run at the ball. Uh, it was also why Daniel Kerr was able to just completely yeah. explode for those years because he was getting the third best tagger. Yeah. Well, not so much explode, I guess, but the the decline in his output once Judd and Cousins left. It was it was pretty right. simple, mate. You've gone from being third in line. And now everyone's most See, the, see the thing that people forget is I think that the best six or seven weeks of football that Daniel Kerr has played in his career was towards the middle and end of 2007, during which time Chris Judd was either not playing or on one leg and Cousins was still suspended. Mm. He actually had a, a golden run where he was the number one midfielder. And people people very, very quick to, to dismiss Daniel Kerr's career stands those guys, he hasn't played much the last few years. He showed, he proved it that, I, I he, think, I, hand on heart, he won the game against Carlton last year. Yeah. I mean, I think his biggest problem is now that he, he's finished, really. Yeah. That's exactly right. He's, he's missed out he's on really the prime of his career. He's suffering from some, an affliction which is very, very similar to, uh, I think I've drawn this comparison before, Craig Callahan, who used to play for Fremantle, he took so many hits very, very early in his career with a with a somewhat underdeveloped body or a body that wasn't strong enough mm. to sustain those hits that it actually shortened his career quite markedly. I think Kerry's been in a similar boat. He's just taken so much punishment over the years that it's it's difficult for him to to basically get up and get his body right and fit and ready to play. Mm. But let me tell you something. If the ball's near or in his area and he's fit and he's around it, it's his. Oh, if he was fit and he was around it, it's his. I don't know if you can still say that about him. Oh, I still no. think so. He, he's, he. Some of the some of the things that I've seen him do, I, uh, I'm just amazed at. Mm. He did have a couple of yeah, very, just completely um, courageous moments in that Carlton match. Yeah, absolutely. Where he just had no thought for his own. Yeah, for his own um, yeah. preservation, basically. Yeah, he was. But, he won but, that game. There's, I mean, there was. We, oh, yeah. I, I don't know though, because I think the Daniel Kerr of a few years ago would have done that and actually 
set the game on fire with mm. his actual well, skills as well. But this is the thing. I mean, he's but, now sort of getting back yeah. on half. But I mean, like Chris, I'd argue that you know, yeah, Curry's not the same player, but Chris Judd's not the same player he was five years ago either. No, no. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. No, Chris Chris Judd uh, couldn't get through on half the way Curry does. Mm. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, Um, you're probably best equipped to talk about Hawthorne. We've both said we see Hawthorne making the grand final. I think that. They're the, they're the favourites for the bookies for a good reason because as as things stand right now, I think that they'd be the team to beat. What is it about Hawthorne that you think makes them the team to beat? And if you have any reservations, what do you feel they are? Oh, the reason they're the team to beat is because it's almost gotten to the stage now where they're pissed off. I mean, when they won that 2008 grand final, I think they had the youngest or the second youngest team in the competition that year I remember saying that day there is a chance for this team to actually create a dynasty here there is a chance for them to just make the next five years a complete era of dominance and they've done fuck all the next season was possibly the most disappointing season's performance from start to finish from a team I've ever seen like premiership hangover doesn't even begin to describe that season. To go from first to not making the finals to finishing ninth, yeah, it was just a complete waste of the talent and the abilities that that team actually has at their disposal. And look, 2010, again, they improved a little bit, but last year, I reckon it would have actually riled them up a bit because they would have known they were just so fucking close to actually getting it done last year. I mean, you question whether they could have beaten Geelong in the grand final, but put it this way, the reason Geelong won the grand final last year was because of the number that Hawthorne did to Collingwood the week before. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. Yeah, when you saw the Collingwood team just run out of gas, that was because they had played to the death for four quarters the previous week. Whereas Geelong were barely tested by yeah. the Eagles in that game. Glass showed up and no one else did. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, Glass and that New England Kerr played and mm. the rest of them were along for the ride. Yeah. Um, but look, the number one problem for Hawthorne is that they have not won a big, you know, crucial, significant, important match since the 08 Grand Final. I can barely think of one. The one that perhaps does come to mind was that game against Collingwood in, I think it was like the last... Round of the season in 2010, and even that one, Dame Beans had a shot from 20 out directly in front and should have kicked it. But they just cannot win the big matches. Well, they haven't been. They haven't been Geelong since then. But it's just almost any time you think, okay, they really have to win this game. Even that last match of the season against Essendon in 2009, you know, a do-or-die match for them. They had to stand up and win that game. They didn't win that one. They've consistently lost those matches over the past few years. The draw against St Kilda was another really good example when they had that game on ice with five minutes to play. And, um, yeah, Luke Hodge left that avenue to goal right at the end and St Kilda managed to keep them to a draw. But so many matches like that, they just have not been able to get the job done. And for me, it's not so much the fact that they kept losing to Geelong, but it's the fact that in almost every single one of those games, they should have beaten them. They should have beaten them. Well, I mean, um, the reason why I, I rate them is that I think that they have a few things working in their favour. 
The first one is I actually think that their coach is criminally underrated. He is a very, very good coach. He's arguably the best coach going around right now. And yes, Chris Scott, Chris Scott lovers may well do that. But I think that when you when you look at the, I guess the situation last year, they basically lost their spine, Sands Franklin, for the for the whole year, and they still managed to win eighteen games, which is phenomenal effort. Yeah, but I, I, the other big actual missed opportunity last year was that Ruffhead was injured, which was actually the best thing that happened to the Hawthorne. See, football I actually think that the the Achilles. Achilles injury is a serious injury. I Which actually think because he weakens that side. They are a well, worse team when Jared Ruffin plays. I have the argument that I think that what will actually happen as a consequence of that injury is, is that they may put him back into defence, which I actually think is the best thing that they could do. Well, I don't care, but the fact is he was getting a game ahead of David Hale in the ruck, which was ridiculous. Then they were trying to play up forward, where all he would basically do was keep running into Buddy's leading space. I mean, there, were, there was a period of matches there last season where he just, he was obviously the weak link in that side, but because he was Jared Ruffhead who kicked 80-odd goals in 2008, he kept getting a game. Mm. If you actually assessed him in the harsh light of day based on his performances, he should have been dropped and Hale should have been brought in as Ratman instead. Like, straight swap. There is no way he should have been getting a game ahead of Hale. Well, I mean, he probably won't this year, but I guess getting, I back, will, getting, getting, I back, to, getting back to the Clarkson mm. thing, the thing that I like about Clarkson is that he's proven that he's willing to change his tack, not only during the season, but during a game. And I don't see too many coaches that either have the adaptability or the, com- the confidence to be able to do that these days. And it's a real advantage to Hawthorne to be able to do that. I mean, you look, the, the, the prime example of that game, that for me was the Fremantle game at the MCG last year. Where God, the, that was awful. I was at that game. <laughs> but the the last quarter of that game, where Hawthorne just completely changed their, their game style and their game structure, and by doing so, were able to turn the game around and win it. I think that that's really important. You can't dismiss what the a quality coach will win you will win you two to three games every year. Mm. Um, the second one is that they got the best player in the game. And Brad Sewell. Brad Sewell. Oh. Um. I'll, yeah. I, I hope you don't make And I stand by that. I stand by No. Lance Franklin. And Hodgie, give him his fucking Norm Smith medal back, okay? Give um, it back. Um, Lance Franklin is the best player in the league. No question of that. I like the idea of moving him up the ground. Not for whole games, but in, in a sustained type role where he maybe spends... 65% of his time in the midfield and then drifts forward from the remaining 35. I see it working in a similar way. Terry Wallace used Matthew Richardson towards the end of his career. I'm mm. sure you remember a game that we both went to versus Richmond Fremantle three or four years ago where Matthew Richardson just basically owned the Dockers for the whole game. Mm. I can see Franklin playing a lot of games like that if they play him in a similar type of role. Games where he'll have 24, 25 possessions, 15 or 16 marks and kick four goals. Uh, in terms of ability to single-handedly win a match, and I mean single-handedly, he, yeah, he stands alone in the competition yeah. right now. I mean, there have been a number of matches over the last few years. In fact, reference back to the, uh, the Hutto rant match. Everyone remembers those two goals, but what they don't remember is that the first one was kicked with Hawthorne um, 
I think they were down by... Uh, I think they were, the scores were level when he kicked that one. And when he kicked the next one, they had actually just gone down by six points. And Essendon looked for all the money in the world like they were going to run away with that game. And he single-handedly turned it on his head. Yeah. And the one against um, West Coast in Launceston last year oh, was absolutely. also a similar yeah. one. Where well, that's right. It was I mean, just all him. Hawthorne didn't beat the Eagles in that game last year. Lance yeah. Franklin did. Don't yeah. kick yourself. With a little bit of Sam Mitchell thrown in. But yeah. um, I think that the, the, the thing that really concerns me, I mean, I, I think the injury side of things, it's incredibly unrealistic to, to think that you're going to suffer that, that many injuries once again to so many key position players in this space of the year. Who were we talking about? Hawthorne. And I think that... What, last year? Last year, yeah. yeah I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I really rate Ben Stratton. Yeah. And... You, you basically, you lose Ruffhead, you lose Stratton, you lose Gillum. Um, you, I agree you, with two of those three. Yeah, well, I just say <laughs> it, 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 it completely destabilises, it destabilises their defence and it means that they have to play Hodge behind the ball. I actually thought that Hawthorne's injury woes were talked up more than they actually impacted the team last year because I actually thought when they got those injuries... That was when that team actually started to perform out of their skins. They actually started playing better, I thought, once a few of those guys went down. Well, I think that they had they changed their structure yeah. as a consequence of that. But they, as I say, the, the there problem, were obvious weaknesses. You're always going to have correct, but I thought yeah. they actually played well, better. Well, I think that the problem you have is that the whole that there's two things that always worry me about Hawthorne. The first one is, is and they've started to address the first one, which is that the there's a lot of similar types of players in the midfield and there wasn't a hell of a lot of pace there. But these days, you bring in an Isaac Smith, you, you bring Shields. in... Shields. Shields, yeah. is, Shields to a lesser extent, but you play Franklin in that type of role as well and they've drafted for speed this year. So they've recognised that they have an issue there. And Hill, I'm so excited so, about seeing him play for Hawthorne. So there's, there's guys like that that they've actually... you know they've, They're addressing that side of things, which is... You know, which is obviously sensible drafting. But the other one is, you know, the whole Luke Hodge conundrum. Where, where's the best place to play Luke Hodge? And I think that they need to, you know, they need to decide, is he, is he best served as that quarterback sitting, sitting behind the ball? Is he, is he a midfielder or is he even the type of guy that you play forward when you need to? I, I think that the, the problem they have, it's, it's a similar situation to what St Kilda had with Brendan Goddard. Is that they they can potentially destabilise their team by not settling somebody like that in a in a common role. Mm. I actually think Hodge. Well, I can't bring myself to say he won the Norm Smith Medal because he actually just leapt up and grabbed it off Sully's neck in the post match ceremony. But that match actually has been damaging for his career since then because everyone's wanted to view him as that um, you know the marshal sort of. Uh, Directing his troops from the half bank line, half back line. And I don't actually know that that's his best role in the side. Well, I think it is. The problem is, is that I think it's of the roles that you're talking about. It's the easiest one to replace. You can't, mm. you can't dismiss the the impact of having quality ball users bringing the ball out of your defensive half with his own structures and that these days. I mean, a big part of the reason why the Eagles had a lot of success last year was Shannon Hearn mm-hmm. very rarely misses a target. Yeah. And that you can't dismiss... Like, There's the same arguments that we had with Hodge that they had with Shannon Hearn, and I'd say the same thing. If the Eagles are 
are seriously contemplating playing Shannon Hearn up the ground, they're kidding themselves. No, but that, see, that's the problem for me, though, is that Hodges actually looked really dangerous. I would almost say he's looked more dangerous than Rioli in the forward line on a number of occasions. I like him, yeah. I, I think his best role for the team as the team's structured now is to play that half is to play that halfback role. Now, maybe they played Bergwijn back there, mm. who, could, who could probably do the same role with 90% efficiency. Mm. But in order to do that, you know, where do you see they're getting the value for Hodge? The problem you have with Hodge is Hodge isn't overly quick either. Can you afford to have Hodge, Saul and Mitchell sitting in the middle? Because you'll get exposed for, for speed across the ground. That's the concern I have with, with putting him there. Whereas the slow, uh, us... A guy who isn't necessarily as fleet of foot, you can sit them behind the ball. Particularly, I mean, Hodge is a very good reader of the play. Mm. So you can afford to sit in there, and it's actually it's a critical role. It's actually a crucial role yeah. in teams these days. And to be honest, I don't think that there's a better guy in the league at doing it. Well, I would suggest, yeah, only Hearn. Yeah. Well, Hearn and Heath Shaw are probably the only two that are comparable mm. in terms of what they actually do. So... I mean, that's, but that's the conundrum. It's always a conundrum that's going to happen. But, yeah. hey, if Hawthorne if is struggling to kick a goal, you know you can chuck somebody like that forward and he can pinch goals for you. But, yeah. yeah. So, look, let me, in closing, let me say this. If Hawthorne manage to just get things going again, if they manage to beat Geelong by five goals early on in the season next year, if they just manage to get that little bit of momentum behind them, they will be an incredibly tough team to stop. I think at the moment that one black mark on their record is that inability to beat the very, very, very best sides. So if they manage to string it all together and do that early on in the season, then look out. Well, I think the interesting thing is, yeah, I mean, that's a very important point. I think that those teams have come back to the field a little bit more mm. this year. I mean, having said that, you know, I mean, Collingwood had 20 wins, Geelong had 19, Hawthorne had 18. There wasn't much of a gap to be bridging in the first mm. place, but you get, Stratton, you get Stratton and Gillen back, you have some tall defenders, which was really an issue for them. It allows Josh Gibson to play a different role, and Gibson may be the guy who actually allows Hodge to move up the ground as well. Mm. Uh, see, he's a great example of like when they got all those injuries to their defenders last year. He stepped up his game like no man's business. There were a lot of players who you looked at them and you thought, wow, they've really stepped it up. But he was one in particular, mm. yeah. The thing is, is that if he's taking the opposition's best power forward, he's always yeah. going to struggle. Yeah. That's just the way it is. And I think Gil- both Gillam and Stratton can actually do that role and do that role quite successfully. Mm. Um, but, you know, with Juong losing Cameron Ling, Brad Ottens, amongst others, Ottens in particular, people don't realise how big an impact that will actually have on their team. Mm. Collingwood have, well, they've lost their coach, they've lost Lee Brown, they've also lost Cracker and McCaffrey for the season as well now. Mm. I don't know. They'll come back to the field. I reckon a Cracker bit. was a bit of a... Just, it was all the glitz and glamour about him last year. I reckon oh. there were a number of players who could be inserted into that infrastructure and that system and that team and perform exceptionally well. I think well. that the thing is is that they've lost some of those guys. they lost a bit of depth. Mm. Um, so they're, they're, they're going to be an intriguing team because there's nothing to say that they're going to play in a similar way to what they have been playing. Yeah. As so, I say, the biggest thing they've got going for them is that they'll be smarting from last year. That's right. But will that be enough? <laughs> 
Um, and of course they'll have their 20 matches at the MCG, which yeah, well that's you know, know that always, always helps. helps. That always helps. <laughs> uh, they do have to come to Perth and play the Eagles over here this year, so we might get four points because they won't be able to find the ground. <laughs> they won't be able to find yeah. the airporting. So, yeah, well that's also true. Hmm. So, um, given so you've said you've you've got Collingwood ahead of Geelong. What's what's prompting that from your perspective? I guess. It does come down to more than anything else. Well, number one, yeah, the fact that Geelong, you almost suspect they've proven it now. They've proven that they could win another flag after the Tomo left and with Chris Scott and everything like that. It's almost gotten to the stage now where they'll still be a good side this year. But I think, I mean, Hawthorne should definitely be beating Geelong this year. There's no doubt about that. And in terms of overall performance across the season, I can see Collingwood being a more consistent side in terms of the, the number of wins they'll notch up throughout the year compared to Geelong. Well, I mean, I, I see that as well. But part of the reason why I like Geelong is Geelong, I'm very, very good at man management. And the thing you always know about Geelong is Geelong always have quality depth there as well. They've got the best recruiter in the business. There's no question of that. So... Whilst they whilst they have some gaps in there, I'm sure that they have guys who can step in and fill those roles. They're not going to fill them to the, I guess, with the same, uh, I guess, the same level of expertise or brilliance. But they'll do enough to pinch it their way through. And I still think that oh, they'll make a prelim. You'd say. Well, you cannot see them finishing I mean, lower than fourth. To be honest, I really think that the, that the league as it's as it sits at the moment, there's really three divisions. There's the Collingwood Geelong Hawthorne division. There's the Greater West. Apologies to Carlton fans who, for some reason, see themselves yeah. in that league. Just, just quickly, Carlton fans. I'll, I'll talk about you in a minute, mm. but you, you're delusional. <laughs> I'll at come best. back to you. I'll come back to you, but you're delusional <laughs> at the best of times. Um, then there's the the Greater Western Sydney, Gold Coast, and Port, Port Adelaide, yeah. who are who are in that that bottom tier. And then I think that everybody else kind of sits in the middle there. I I, I think that that's kind of how it works. Um, yeah, with regards to Carlton fans, uh, it's it's amazing some of the trike you hear from these guys. Like seriously, Carlton fans actually believe that they are a better team than the Eagles last year. I'm, I'm I'm not sure where they get the empirical evidence to to prove that that was actually the case. When you you take into account that the Eagles finished ten points above them on the ladder, that the Eagles played them twice and the Eagles beat them twice. Well, let me put it this way. Those two teams played off in a sudden death final, yeah. and Carlton didn't win. Oh, um, Carlton, that's Carlton. it. Sorry, Carlton. game over. If well, you play off against another team in a, in a final where one of the whoever loses goes home, yeah, you can't then turn around and say we were a better team. Well, let me put it to you in Carltonese, so you can turn around and laugh at this. We didn't have Cruiser. We didn't have. Bryce Gibbs, and we didn't have Jared White playing in those games. Let me let me just say two things. You threw an overrated tag out there before for Nick Del Santo. Can I say that Matthew Cruiser is the most overrated player in the AFL right now, and Jared White is probably a close second. The way that Carlton fans taught them up is like that they're they're absolutely brilliant and they can do no harm. I've never seen Cruiser. I, I think I've seen Cruiser play one game that I would consider top quality. I'd like to think that to be a superstar, you play a hell of a lot more than one game. So if, if he could kick the ball 10 metres in a straight line, that would have been in Geelong last year too. So, anyway, 
So and Jared Jared White has, you know, if he's if he's not trying to to kick opposition defenders in the nuts, he's uh, he's running around doing, doing oh, no, very sorry. little. <laughs> he's running around yeah. doing very very little. So I don't think that they actually would have added too much to that team anyway. Gibbs maybe a little bit more, but the reality is you put twenty two players out there, they weren't good enough. You know, take your to- take your toys. Have, you know. Brett Ratton's still probably crying about the supposed non-free kick in the goal square. Andrew Walker supposedly ended up on the ground, yet Andrew Walker grabbed Darren Glass's glasses running back for the ball. And you think that it's a free kick? I mean, come on, Mate, if you're going to make the argument that there was a free kick that cost you the match, I can probably off the top of my head think of about 52,700 worst free kicks that weren't paid last year that impacted the team. The yeah. fact that that got blown up into a controversy yeah. is is just beyond a joke. Yeah. Beyond a joke. It is. It's ridiculous. But yeah. anyway, getting back. So, yes, Carlton fans, you weren't as good as the Eagles last year. Deal with it. Mm. Suffering your jocks. You may well be the fourth best team in the league this year. We'll, we're yet <laughs> to see. But if you honestly think that you're in the class of Hawthorne, Geelong and Collingwood, well, I'm sorry, you're not. Yeah. And to be honest, the funny thing is, is that I don't rate your coach, and not finishing in that thing may well actually mean that you improve because it might mean he gets the arse. Yeah. I don't know. The Carlton just... It's just... Where is the actual talent and performance to back up the hype? Well, the, there's just nothing to really genuinely get excited about when you watch Carlton. Here's the reality with Carlton. Carlton have a, a quality midfield, but very little else. But And even the midfield, you would say... Yeah, it's good, but it's certainly not sensational enough to warrant the hyperbole and well, the, I think the, that they the, have, the way it gets talked up. They, they have a lot more... Um, I'm trying to think of... The, their midfield structure and the, the people that they put there is probably the most diverse that any of the teams have. So there's strength associated with that, but for God's sake, if you think you're going to make it... Can you get a key forward at some stage? Mm. Seriously, like... Well, that's right. You gave one to us. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah, that's right. That, I mean, yeah, let's get... Yeah. We won't talk about that. You, well, yeah. you, you traded one off to Brisbane because you refused to pull him into line. And um, the guy you got back, you ended up deciding, oh, he's actually... He's our key forward of the future, but he's actually better at set-half back. Mm. Um and then the guy who you were grooming for the role, you decided, well, you know, Richard Pratt's uh, money bags weren't big enough to uh, to keep him and Chris Dudd. So, um, yeah, you sent him to the Eagles. Thanks, By the way, thanks for that. We really appreciate mm. it. Tell you what a really good comparison is. Chris Dudd versus Sam Mitchell in terms of how much they have brought to their sides. Because I would say Sam Mitchell probably brings about the same... As, as Judd does. See, I mean, it's probably about on par, but you compare the way that they are both revered. Interesting question, Judd, because right? I think that they play very, very different roles. But if you're... I mean, to be perfectly honest, if you're asking me to pick a team from scratch and you said to me I could have one of Sam Mitchell and Chris Judd, but not both, I'd probably take Mitchell. Mm. And the reason why I'd take Mitchell is, is that Mitchell's in and under work is yeah. is exquisite, and in an in an elite type team, mm. you'd have quality outside ball users who'd just be feeding off of that. As I said, I talked about Lenny Hayes earlier on. It's a Lenny Hayes type thing. It's very mm. similar. Oh look, and that and, is why. and Mitchell and Mitchell tackles. Mm. <laughs> well, in fact, it's funny you mentioned that because 
that is why I always rate Sam Mitchell and Brad Sewell so highly because they are not the we're going to take 15 bounces along the wing and kick mm. goal from the 50 arc. They're not the midfielders like that at all. But if you see the work that those guys do, and Sully's sort of become more of a, a tagging option now than the actual mm. um, you know winning it himself. But just the the presence of those two guys at a contest, it it's almost tangible. You can just tell when Sewell and Mitchell are in that contest. And I think that this is the why I've made that pace argument, and it's also why I like Franklin, because if they play Franklin as an outrider around those contests, mm. he, who's going to catch... Who, first of all, who can match up Franklin and who can run with him? Not Mark McVeigh, that's for sure. Yeah. So... <laughs> I think that that's the thing. It's, mm. And that's the role yeah. that um, Jordan Lewis actually plays well, Lewis, pretty well Lewis, for the Hawks. Yeah, uh, Lewis, I mean, I've, I've, yeah, we, mm. we talked about all these good guys at Hawthorne. We didn't even talk about yeah. Jordan Lewis. I mean, yeah. Jordan mm. Lewis is probably the most versatile Hawthorne player mm. in their team. He can virtually play every position. And he has actually really improved. I used to think... In the 08 Grand Final, back at that stage, I used to think he was one of the weakest Hawthorne players in their 22. I thought he was really a yeah a weak link. But he has actually improved dramatically over the last few seasons. Well, I mean, he was clearly rated by Port Adelaide because they wanted him as part mm. of the Sean Burgoyne deal, but uh, Hawthorne quite wisely said no. And he, he just adds that toughness... Um, and, you know, they've used him as a tagger as well. They've used him across half-back, mm. and they've used him as that defensive half-forward as well. And he's able to do all of those roles, and he does all of those roles quite well. Mm. So, yeah, he's... Yeah, there's, there's, as I say, look, there's a lot to like about Hawthorne. The other good thing is the, um, the successful um, veteran uh, recruited from another club, because in Sean Burgoyne and David Hale, they, in terms of where they are, where they were as a team picking up those two guys, they've been two really, really good pickups, and that's often a trademark you'll see of the teams that win the premierships. Yeah. They have a couple of great pickups like that. Well, they tried the same with Cameron Bruce, but it didn't quite work yeah, out for yeah. them. But, I mean, Jack Gunston also, who they've picked up this year, he's going to be a, a quality pickup for them. He can play as that third tall forward, even as that third tall defender, and... Um, yeah, look, and he just sounds like Jason Dunstall, doesn't well, he? Well, I mean, look, he's wearing he's wearing Jason's old number, <laughs> yeah. which is sounds uh, a lot like But it's good. I um yeah, I mean, I saw him play a fair bit at Adelaide and was quite impressed with him. And I know Adelaide were pretty upset that he decided to uh, to leave them. So yeah, but yeah, that is one other thing I will say. Phil Davis, seriously, I mean, has there ever been a player who has done so little? and gotten so much from it. He has achieved absolutely nothing in his career. In fact, he's achieved less than nothing because he's turned his back on his side and betrayed them for 30 pieces of silver. I seriously hope that he just crashes and burns from here on in. Well, he's had a horrible run of injury so far. I'll say that. The Irish will be Rightfield, though, so I think he's going to... If he can stay... But is he worth... What, the $6 million or If they can keep him fit, he's one of the best young defenders going around in the AFL. I don't know, man. I've seen him, I've seen him towel up Matthew Pavlich. I've seen him towel up Josh Kennedy. I've seen him stand body to body with Jonathan Brown and not embarrass himself. There's a lot to like about Phil Davis. But, as I said, he's the wretched, you know, shoulders, when you pop shoulders and you're continually popping shoulders, it's not a good sign. <laughs> Particularly for an AFL footballer. 
anyway, the well, I guess for a week where I said there wasn't really that much on in well, sport, we managed to get quite a bit of material. All right. Well, perhaps on a you know a good note to close on is let's just hand over to GJ and you know the, a topic on which you're possibly more qualified um, to talk than any other. How do you think the West Coast Eagles will go in 2012? Well, I mean everything fell into place in 2011 for the Eagles. They virtually had no injuries. They had the the draw from heaven, really. Uh, it's not quite the same this year, and it, it already hasn't started out the best with the uh, the knee injury to Mark McCray ruling him out for the year. Mm. Now, it's I shades think, of Morabito, perhaps, isn't it? <laughs> In well, terms of a bad omen. It's one of these things. I think that it's <laughs> there's probably about a million Eagles supporters who will disagree with this. I actually reckon it's a blessing in disguise. I would love for the Eagles to play. Mark Lecrae either as a high half forward or as a or as an outside midfielder on a lot more regular basis than they have been thus far, and the reason why they've been re- reluctant to do that is because he's so valuable to them close to goal. So, you I still know, don't think you can call it a blessing in disguise, though. Losing well, a the reason of his caliber, the reason he's why in like the top two well, or three of the club. The reason why I find it to be a blessing in disguise is that I'm hoping that one of these guys, they've got about seven or eight small forward options. I'm hoping. One of them seriously jumps up and claims the role to be their own this year, which gives them the, the freedom to be able to use Lacroix in ways that they haven't been able to thus far. So yeah. I see that being a—it's an important step for the club this year. I was already predicting them to probably just drop down a couple of games because you couldn't—you couldn't imagine that they'd be so lucky both with injury and the draws a little bit tougher this year. When I looked at the draw initially and mapped it out, I had them probably around 13 or 14 yeah. wins, which you'd think will get you in the eight, will probably get you a home final, but you might not get much further than that. The, so. the big thing they got back last year, though, is their complete dominance at home. Absolutely. Like, that is the one thing now that will carry them through, because up until last season... They, yeah, that was just gone. That was dead and buried, yeah. that, that well, I mean, um, I was... atmosphere that they had at their home matches. Whereas now, you'll say, whatever happens this year, they'll only lose, you know, at most two or three matches at home. Well, they've so. got Collingwood, Hawthorne and Geelong all over here late in the year from memory. So you'd imagine that they won't win all of those. But you, if, if they got nine wins at home, nine out of 12, you'd imagine they'll probably split the derbies as well. If they got nine home wins and they got four or five on the road, which you'd expect them to do, that they'll be they'll be around that 13-14 win mark. So I, I kind of see that that's the thing. I mean, yeah, they went 12 and one at home last year, which really helped them. Yeah. Uh, there's no question of that. And you know, look, that's part of the luxury that the interstate teams have. They pay for it on the other end. But if you can build a, a bit of a fortress at home where you've where you've got 50,000, well, in the Eagles' case, about 40,000 rabid supporters on the opposition team as part of that process. It really does play a role for them. The other thing I was going to say, like with those matches against the top three at the end of the season, it then becomes a question of what, you know, what for each of those three teams, what their um, basic position is before they have to hop on a plane and fly five hours over to WA because that's the sort of match that they can look at and say... We're not going to, you know, go 100% yeah. intensity for this game. Well, I mean, that's right. I mean, I think that uh, I think you'll find that the Eagles are actually a team that I would expect to try and follow the dual model. And I actually noticed 
that um, they've come out and said that today, that they're looking, they'll be looking to rest their veterans for certain games throughout the season, which is probably for the best because, you know, a, a big part of their success last year was through the, the performances Cox of their glass, veterans. Man. Cox, Cox Glass yeah. and to a lesser extent Embley as mm. well. Embley had a couple of huge games at home yeah. against um, these things, but also the... I guess the resurrection in many respects of Quinton Lynch and Mark Nikoski in... Oh, Mark Nikoski wasn't a resurrection. I mean, that... It wasn't just a dead body. That thing had been, like, cut, quartered and grinded into absolute smith. Yeah, I believe I'd, I'd suggested maybe he should have given it away at, uh, at one point in time. But, um... I mean, they got 41 goals out of him last year, which was an absolute... That could possibly be the greatest single-season turnaround I've ever seen. To be honest, yeah. From where I he mean, was at the, like, it is, the end of it the is, year before, it is interesting. I mean, through two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, one of the things that you noticed about Wurstbold was he was steadfastly loyal to a to a fault in some respects towards some of these guys. But and Nikoski was certainly one of those guys who he would get a walk up start mm. when it was not obvious why no, that he was. He was case. awful. But there was a period there, yeah, a couple of years back where he was just. He was terrible. He was possibly yeah. the worst player getting a game at AFL level. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, he came back as that small forward last year, and I mean, yeah, it changed his career. Forty-one goals. It was a great effort. You can't. I, at the same time, you know, you can't expect all of those guys to perform at the level that they performed at last year. Glassy played probably his best season ever. Cox was an All Australian, and he well and truly deserved to be an All Australian, yeah. even though. He was breaking down towards the end of the year. Mm. I mean, they got 16 quality games out of Daniel Kerr, which, you know, we probably would have taken six yeah. uh, in the past. Um, Quinton Lynch was resurrected as a high as a high half forward, which is probably the role he should have always been playing anyway because Kennedy was of more value to the club closer to goal. Mm. And, yeah, Nikoski reinventing himself as a small forward. And Embley just had a... A purple patch at one stage throughout the season. Yeah. He had five or six really strong weeks. He faded as as the year went on. Yeah, but how he got all Australian is well. He was named in the squad, but he wasn't an all Australian. Yeah, but, but that I was mean, more just based on <laughs> yeah the average he, of the last couple yeah. of years. So on one hand you had that, but on the other hand you you had some some really surprising things as well. You had the continued improvement of Scott Selwood as a midfielder who could not only shut down an opposition. But he led the league in tackles last year, and his disposal has improved year on year on year to the point whereby he's actually a, you know, he's a he's a quality midfielder. I still prefer that he doesn't kick though. <laughs> well, yeah, his 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 kicking has improved, but yeah, well, still got much worse, on the but yeah. on the flip side, on the flip side, they got some class in the midfield through Luke Shuey as well. The yeah. Superman. Yeah, I I've been raving about him for years to anybody who'll listen to me in. He finally vindicated, I guess, some of the some of the things that I'd seen in him last year. I just knew that if he could get fit, that he could, he could prove to be a quality midfielder. And his disposal, in particular, is is on both sides of his body is near the top of the league right now. Um, so the the improvement of those guys, Nick Natanui continues to improve. Eric McKenzie was a was an absolute well not necessarily a revelation but he took another important step in his career whereby he was taking the, the best tall forward towards the end of the year which released Glass yeah he and Glass in tandem towards the I mean in the past it was just 
Glassy would dominate yeah. his guy and the rest you'd sort of hope would work out for the best. But by the end of last season, Glass and McKenzie, you could make the argument that they were, as a, as a pair, two of yeah. the toughest yeah, defenders to play against. Yes, I mean, McKenzie, McKenzie very rarely gets outmarked. That's the thing I like about him. Like, he, he very rarely gets outmarked. Mm. And... Well, Glass is just impossible to move off the line of the ball. And That's always yeah. been his So, and, I mean, so you had that, and then you had guys like Ash Smith popped up, who became a very, very important player in the mix. He didn't always get a game towards the end of the year, but he he took a step forward in his career that I didn't actually see in him. Where he actually was running, he was playing as the tall, the third tall defender, but he was actually running off of guys and creating... Through the, creating opportunities through the midfield. It's funny what can happen once a team just gets their shit together. Once yeah. they start performing. And that's, Those that's, are the sorts of guys yeah. who actually start And that's, that's without me even touching on Andrew Gaff and Jack Darling. And both of those guys added something very, very different to the team. Jack mm. Darling in particular, you, yeah. the statistics will not truly show what impact he had on that team last year. His pressure... There's something about a big forward, isn't there? That yeah. it just, it's such a... Valuable asset his, to have. His pressure, in particular, mm. is just he's maniacal about the way he goes about pressuring the opposition, and it's just things like that that rub off on all the players around them. Mm. It's it's fantastic. I mean, the Eagles went could the Eagles were in a very very fortunate position in that they could play a taller forward one because guys like Darling, Kennedy, and Nat Nui are great at applying pressure once the ball hits mm. the ground. Yeah. So. You'd have to say that the, I guess, the biggest question mark that sat within them, it's kind of been further highlighted with uh, the unfortunate injury to Lacroix, is that as a team they probably don't have that small crumbing forward that provides pressure. You know, we talked about Carlton. Carlton have two guys in Garlett and Betts who can fill that role. The Eagles have none, really. And it's really important that either a Josh Hill, a Murray Newman, uh, Ashton hands or an Andrew strike really steps up and takes that role this year because it will make the team better longer term. So, I mean, with all of those things in mind, I'm sure that there's a couple of guys who I've missed in that in that summary. I think that Brad Ebert will... They'll miss Brad Ebert more than they probably realise and Port did very, very well to get him for practically nothing. I'm but, sorry, I just remember that Brad Ebert doesn't play for us again, and I was yeah. <laughs> momentarily overwhelmed. But the I see us falling back a little bit, maybe finishing 6th or 7th, around that mark, around the 13-14 win mark, which I, I expect will probably get you towards the top half of that bottom four in the in the eight. So you probably get a home final, and... The biggest concern I actually have about West Coast, though, is the way the league is structured to sort of be you have to go down in order to come back up, is that I don't actually know that they've got a side that can win a premiership here because Glass and Cox won't be around for it. I think that the thing that they've done is that they've actually got a pretty good secession plan in place with some of these guys, Mm. is that, I mean, Nat Nui was a luxury that they could afford to take at that time, but they... They would have been foolhardy not to draft him at that point, and I think if Melbourne had their time again, they'd probably make a very different decision. Well, and Stephen Hill was after that, wasn't he? He was, yes. Yeah. You, you, could, you could argue that the Eagles could use Stephen Hill more than they could use Nick Natanui right now, but 
in terms of the well, I don't know though because if Coxie goes down, you don't have Nana Nui. Well, in terms of the <laughs> development, the development of their list, mm. Nat Nui is the the natural successor to Dean Cox, and Nat Nui is a guy who's proven throughout his career already that he actually rises to the occasion when he's given more responsibility. And, I mean, once again, Nat Nui hasn't really had a, a, a true pre-season yet, and he basically played the last all, all of last year on one shoulder. So, what he's going to be like when he's fit... Scott, Scott Lysette, who's basically sitting in the wings as well, he's he played one game last year and showed some quite positive signs as well, and he'll only get better as time goes on. So, with regards to Coxie out of the cover there, I mean, McKenzie is the obvious cover for, mm. for Darren Glass. I just wonder whether they do have, like, the superstars in this sort of next crop of players that will actually get them to a flag. Well, I think that the core of... I guess the core of the new breed is going to be your Shuey Darling, Kennedy Gaff kind of mix alongside Nat Nui. That's kind of the thing. Do they have, do they have many elite guys who are in that... In that age coming through, that's a that's a good question. But I mean, mm-hmm. how many other teams have those those guys as well? Oh yeah, but I'm more worried about the fact that they've come back up now. I think that the so. problem that they're going to have is, is that they'll go they'll go up, they'll lull. Yeah. As those yeah. guys disappear, so they'll probably yeah. have one or two down years, but then they'll come back again. So they they may they'll plateau a little bit, but then they'll re rise. So what they need to do in the meantime is, yeah, find the replacements for that. Well, that's that right. sort of top-level player. The beauty, of the, beauty of the Glass-Cox-type situation as well that's, that we're probably understating here is, is that the, the role that free agency may well play in that is, is that they may be able to cherry-pick guys from other clubs who could fill those roles as well. I don't think that the Cox... Cox I mean, Cox is an incredibly unique footballer. You can't replace what Dean Cox brings to a, to a club. You won't be able... I mean, Nat Nui plays... You couldn't replicate what Nat Nui does as much as North Melbourne would like to lead you to believe mm-hmm. that you can. But those guys are just so unique and different. And, and Glassy's, Glassy's very much the same. But the Eagles have got some depth in key positions as well. So, they, you know, they have Mitch Brown, they who... Can't really get a get a good run at the game at the moment. You can play Schofield in that type of role because he's bigger than you think, and they've they've drafted a couple of guys looking forward into into those. Yeah. No, look, I think you said it right there. What all they need to do now is just draft star players A, B, and potentially C over the next few years, so that those guys are. Well, I think that as I say, I think that a couple of the guys are already in their system, which is a which is a benefit for them. Mm. So. It just becomes, can they get the cream to replace some of these guys? I mean, the guy who may well be the hardest for them to replace is actually Andrew Embley. Because he plays a very, he plays a very unique role in the, in the team. I would have said Shannon Hearn would be more difficult to replace, but... I think they've yeah. got guys, they've got guys that they could play in, that, in a similar type of role to Shannon, but that not with the same level of quality. I think that, you know, Embley, Embley's actually tall enough to play as a key position player if he absolutely had to. Mm. Uh, and I think that that's kind of the thing. He's, you know him as a running, mid, a, a gut-running midfielder, but he's actually a lot taller than, than you realise. So oh, That's why Jack Darling's so good. That's exactly guy. right. And Jack Darling, I mean, they, they talk about Jack Darling being potentially the new, the new swingman mm. in terms of being able to play back forward and midfield. And 
Jeez, wouldn't you shit yourself if you saw Jack Darling running around in the yeah. midfield? Yeah, anyone who you see run like that and then just, in, yeah, in terms of how much like mass and size he actually has just, along with that speed, I just think that's he, a scary combo. Yeah, you have Nat, you have Nat here's one for everyone to, to ponder. You have Nat Nui, uh, Scott Selwood, Matt Pritterson, Jack Darling sitting in the mid, midfield there at the set of bounce. How are you going to get the ball out? <laughs> Because those guys are fierce tacklers. Mm. Um, yeah, so, look, I, as I say, I'm going into this season with a little bit of trepidation. I think that they may have to take a step backwards to go forwards again. Well, I don't think they could take a step forwards, though. I mean, they couldn't yeah. finish higher than four. It's, it's, so. it's hard to see. It's hard to see them passing up Hawthorne a, a draw. At home, or though, a and that's what I'm saying. They, they're, um, that aura they've got at home now. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think that they're still probably the best of the rest, but the, the draw the, the draw or the fix or however you want to refer to it uh, is probably going to work against them a little bit this year. So they, they, may, they may level down a little bit as a consequence of maybe not playing the same teams that they would have been playing last year. Mm. So, as I say, I see them in that... I see them towards the top of that middle rung. So you'd say that it's probably them, them and Carlton, and I would expect that come the end of the year that potentially Fremantle and, and North Melbourne will be pushing towards the top end of that rung as well. The type of teams where you just look at them and know, like, two weeks into September, you're going to be bawling your eyes out. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, yeah, well, yeah where, you, where you sit there and say this is good for our club because we're yeah, moving forward. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that, all the young Eagles who played in those games last year, they probably got two years' experience in three finals games. I mean, there's no way, there's no question that Luke Shuey in particular wouldn't have learned a hell of a lot from those three games. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm positive. But, I mean, I, I absolutely loved watching them last year. It was, it was an absolute treat to watch a team... Basically, you know, a team going from four wins to 17, you just don't see it. In terms of how much they got out of what they had, you could make the case for that being their best season ever. Yeah, absolutely you can make that case because they, they, they basically succeeded on the back of having a, a strong defence led by a, a fantastic captain and a, and a dominant ruckman reminding everybody just how good he was. Note to all the Fox footy supposed experts out there who believed that Liam Jarrah was an elite footballer and Dean Cox wasn't. Well, you know, I hope those words... That's just beyond staggering. Well, no, I'm just saying, I, I'm, just, yeah. I'm just hoping those words tasted mighty nice when you went and swallowed them. I, I honestly don't think they actually have the capability to taste anything. If, if their brains are that fried that they're coming up with calls like that, it, yeah, yeah, staggering. Staggering. So, uh, across this week now, we've we've pretty much covered off Hawthorne and the Eagles, and we've touched on a a few of the other clubs briefly. We'll we'll go into a little bit more depth with some of the other clubs during during our next discussion, but given that it's... uh, GWS will win the wooden spoon. There's there's, there's one other team across the the list. Uh, if, if being being that you're a, you're a man who's very very good at spotting a high quality punt, how many games do you think that they're going to win this year? How many times do they play like Port Adelaide and Brisbane and and those sorts of teams where like they can get themselves up for 
for a win. Well, I mean, I, 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 they could potentially beat somebody like Sydney too, for all we know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't remember exactly how many they are, but I would imagine that they're playing the they're playing the Gold Coast twice. I know they play the Gold Coast twice, they play Sydney twice, and they play Adelaide twice. Mm. I can't remember who the other clubs are who they're playing twice. But from memory that they weren't necessarily weak teams. Yeah. No, I do like a punt, but I'd, I'd go with two wins. Two wins. Yeah, that's what I'm going yeah, with. Yeah, given, given Gold Coast... safe. Yeah, that's, that's, that's probably about where I'd be. I mm. mean, when you consider the Gold Coast won three, they had arguably better young kids, or they were drawing from a better pool of younger kids. They'd had a, a two years working together with the, the people that they had in their system, and they got better quality players from uh, from the other clubs. I mean, Nathan Bock was, did a fantastic job down back for them last year, and I mean, Gary Ablett was, I I must admit to, uh, to underrating just how good a player he was. I thought he was a player who was successful because of the Geelong system, but he well and truly proved me wrong last year. So Still, if you ask me like five years from now how many games GWS will lose for the year and it'll probably be two. Yeah. I've talked about that earlier. I've, I'm not one of those people that, that sees that. No, man. Demetrio's got it written in his contract that Greater Western Sydney must win two premierships before the year 2020. Yeah, well, there's 17 other clubs that would like to see him fail with that. So... And one podcaster right here. Which one? Well, I, I, <laughs> you just, I was going to say, I like to see Dimitrio far just as much as the next guy, so... Really, just what's not to like about Dimitrio far. Yeah, I'm just trying to think <laughs> Yeah, anyhow. Well, on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, to make way and prepare for podcast number four. I think, yeah, I'm just, yeah, I still need to get my head around that fact. Yeah, so... We're almost past one hand worth of counting. Yeah, that's here. right, that's going to be my mystification. And I think we need to get, like, some sort of, you know, streamers, balloons, get YouTube down here to film and stuff like that. It's the little podcast that couldn't, and we have. Yeah, well, we, let's get there before we make such wild claims. Hey, we got to three, mate. But... Until next time, this is GJ signing off. Yep. And this is Action Jackson saying... I don't know. Hang in there. We've got got a fourth episode coming up next week. And until next time, remember that all the good times we have, we'll have again. See you later. Now leaving the bloke pod.